Amen. All right, so we're kicking off a new series. So if you're here for the first time, we're kicking off a new series called Read Your Bible. Now, if you've been here with us for any time of length of time, you know that we do this every single year. We love doing this series, and there's a reason why. Uh, and usually, uh, we usually use a particular Bible study method, and then we preach through that and teach you a new Bible study method, but we're doing that with a little bit of a twist this year. So we, we purposely choose multiple different preachers to come up here and speak and to share, because we want you to see the different uh, manners in which we speak, as well as how we study the Scriptures. So this year, we're actually asking each of the presenters to share with you their personal Bible study methods. And so we're going to be preaching out of the way that we study the Bible in our own personal time and the way that we digest the Word of God in our studies. So I'm excited about that, so I hope you guys are too. So as we go through this, you're going to be able to see different styles. Because ultimately, in this series, what do we want you to do? See, you already got it down, right? We want you to be reading the Bible because that's where the truth of the Word of God resides. And so we want it to get into your hearts and in your minds. In fact, we even have uh, Jim DeSicchio. Uh, he's written for the last several years, he writes a Bible study guide that goes along with the sermon series. And we have another one for you. It's in digital format. I think Matt might have printed off some this morning. If you need a print version, we can get you that. But we're going to send that out to everybody. Uh, we thank Jim exceedingly for his work on that. We tell him months in advance about the series, the books that we're going to be going through, and then he takes months to write this Bible study. So I really encourage you guys, read that as well, because that's what he does. He loves to dig into the Word of God, uh, and he has his MDiv, and he also, he just preaches in a different way. He preaches through the written, through written text. So please use that as we go through this series as well. The books that we're going to be going through this time is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I'm excited about that because it, it has a little bit of a history back in my own personal life. Um, and and I, I learned uh, how to apply this chapter and, and these books in my own life in a, in a unique way. I was hitchhiking across uh, in, in Arizona. And too long of a story why I was hitchhiking. I can share that with you another time. But I was hitchhiking and a, a guy picked me up by the name of Joseph. And so we begin talking, and if you know me, I, I like to talk about Jesus. And so we begin talking, and we start talking about Jesus. And so uh, I had to find, wait for a ride to come pick me up, so I spent about five to six hours at his house, and we talked about the man, Jesus Christ, for hours. All right? And so what I began to discover from him is that he believed in what was called a mystical Christ. I had never heard, I was 24 years old. Uh, 20, no, I wasn't, I was 23 years old. 23 years old, doesn't matter. And uh, so I hadn't heard of the mystical Christ, but then as we're talking, he's like, yeah, you can trace it back to the teachings of docetism and Gnosticism. And so I'm like, well, I'd heard of Gnosticism, but I wasn't real familiar with it. And so we, sit, we sat there and we discussed Jesus for hours. And I'd love to say that I led him to Christ, but he already thought he was led to Christ, all right? And so uh, what I began to learn is that, hmm, I have a lot to learn about different false teachings and religions that are out there, right? But what I really want you to understand from that story, and the reason why I tell you the story, because it actually goes into First and Second, Third John, but what I want you to understand is it would have been easy for me to be deceived by a semblance of the truth if I hadn't known the truth. But it's the same thing that applies to you. It's easy to be deceived, all right? Let me, let me promise you on this. It is easy to be deceived by a semblance of truth if you don't know the actual truth. And that, and that can apply to multiple areas of life, but especially when we start studying Jesus Christ. Because there's a lot of false teachings out there. There's a lot of false teachers out there. And it's easy, when you begin to look at this, it's really easy to be deceived by Gnosticism or Docetism. In fact, I would 
venture to say, if I started preaching a message, a Gnostic message here this morning, most of you wouldn't even know that I wasn't preaching Jesus Christ. I could veil it in the scriptures so heavily that you would, you would think I was just preaching about Jesus. That's how closely matched they are. It's also why it was so deceiving back in the day. So when I left Joseph's house, Joseph's house, I began to study on my own, and I wanted to look up, okay, how do, I, how do I impact someone like that again? When I come across someone who has that type of a belief in their, in their religious upbringing, how do I confront that type of teaching? What, what would I go, where would I go to in the scriptures? Well, as I'm beginning to study the scriptures, all right, now I was 24, 23, so when I, it was 24 years ago, that's why I keep getting those mixed up. So when I began to study on my own, I found out John, in the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, John was combating the same teachings. He was confronting Gnosticism and Docetism 2,000 years ago. And so what my enlightened hitchhiking buddy who picked me up thought he was enlightened by this greater spiritual understanding of who the mystical Christ was, he was only spouting something that had been confronted by church leaders 2,000 years prior. Now, I wouldn't have known that had I not dug into the Scripture and started studying it on my own. And so I want to introduce you to the Bible study method I've been using for years. You don't have to use this one. It's just easy. I like easy. It's a three-step process. This is my personal Bible study method. Observe, interpret, apply. Now, I didn't come up with that. I stole it out of a book. It was so long ago, I don't even know which book I stole it out of. All right, It's just what I've used all through my life. So this is such a part of every single thing in my reading habits, this, doesn't, this isn't even just for the Bible anymore. This is how I observe everything that I read. Observe, interpret, apply. But I certainly start with the scriptures. So in the observation process, you begin to ask yourself all the questions. Now, personally, I can get stuck in the observation method. And my personal mentality and my own personality kind of can get lost in this area. You don't have to get lost like I get lost, but I love to make the scriptures come alive. I love to dig in and find out what would it have been like to be John? You know, like when he was walking down the streets, what kind of a market did he have to go to? What were the threats against his life when he was preaching Jesus Christ? I mean, he'd seen, he's the only one that didn't get martyred. He did get boiled in a pot of boiling water and sent off to an island, but you know he didn't die like the rest of his buddies did. So we have to ask ourselves, what was life like when these authors are writing the scriptures? And so that's why I get stuck in the observation because I, I like the scriptures to come alive. It makes it a lot easier than when you begin to try and interpret what it was, what is the author really trying to say to the original audience? And then it also makes it easier when you actually apply it because the better you understand what's happening in the day and life of the one who wrote it, the greater chance you don't misapply it in the day and life in which you live as well. So as we do that, uh, we begin to understand what the author is saying in each one of the passages that we read. Now we're going to go to 1 John this morning. We're going to read 1 John chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 14. And when we study this, I use... Uh, Again, I'm not really creative on this stuff, all right? I use five W's, right? Who, what, where, when, and why, all right? If you've studied anything and you've ever read any literature, you know that those are the five W's to ask. Who, what, where, when, and why. So in the observation method, those are the five W's that I'm asking, all right? Who, what, where, when, and why. And so this is so central to my reading now that these are going on in my mind at all times. So as we go through the scripture here this morning, I want you to begin to think through as I'm talking where the observation is happening. Which question am I answering? 
when do I move over to interpretation? When do I move over to application? Now, I'm going to try and tell you when I do that, but I want you to just be aware of it as well. Because you don't just observe. I'm not that linear. You don't just interpret, and then you go back, and then, well, now I'm going to apply. They're all three kind of happening simultaneously as you're going through this. But the better you do the process, the more cohesive this process actually becomes. All right. So when you, when you do this, though, I want you to understand you are coming to a church that believes in the infallible Word of God. So you have to ask yourself, do you believe in the infallible Word of God that it is holy, that it is true, and that it is inspired? And do you believe that it is written by God and penned by man? All right, Because that's what we believe, and that's what I believe. All right? It is God's holy Word written to me. All right? It is inspired by God, but it is written by man. But they didn't screw up in the writing of it. Why? Because they were being led by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's called the infallible Word of God. But before you start reading the Scriptures, you have to resolve that question in your own mind. Because if you don't resolve that question, then the Bible simply becomes another book that you're reading. And it holds no merit in your life. Holds no authority. But when it's infallible, well now that book just got elevated to a whole nother realm. It now carries a whole lot of authority in the life that you live. But only if you think it's infallible, and only if you think it's actually God's direct word to you to read. So, as I preach here this morning, I want you to understand that's the objective, and that's the perspective, that's the presupposition, whatever word you want to use, that I'm coming from when I'm preaching the word of God here this morning. So let's jump into 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 1-10, through 10, all right? And I'm going to kind of stop along the way and ask some of those questions that we're going. Uh, so... Uh, He jumps right in, starts off. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. He is starting off strong by declaring some truths, all right? So you gotta, I'm, I'm noticing that from the very beginning. He repeats it like four times. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Who's the word of life? Jesus Christ, keep going. The life that appeared, we have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life. We've seen it. We have touched it. We proclaim it. Are you seeing these words repeated over and over again? Which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So now he's talking about Jesus. He was with the Father and now the life, the word of life, now has appeared with us. Sounds a lot like another John 1, 1. Oh, imagine. Keep going. We'll get to that in a second. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Now he's saying, we proclaim what we have seen, what we have heard. Why? So that we can live in fellowship with one another. Huh. All right. These are, these are key words as I'm reading these. These are jumping off the page at me. And our fellowship, here goes this fellowship word again, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Huh. So what is going to make his joy complete? Something is going on in this beginning passage. Like He's being very specific about the words he's chosen. If you've ever written anything, you know that authors pick their words very precisely. I want you to understand. The authors of the scriptures pick their words very precisely. Something is happening. What's causing John, as as I'm reading this, what is going on in John's life? He's hammering away at this idea of fellowship and the fact that he's reminding them, guys, we were with him. We were with Jesus. Remember that when you start listening to what we're saying. Remember, we were with him. 
Who was he writing to? Now, here's what I want you to understand. When you start asking yourselves these questions, don't get bogged down yet. I want you to keep reading the Scripture because Scripture interprets Scripture. It's up there. There it is. Scripture interprets Scripture. It, it oftentimes does that. So you need to make sure that you keep reading. Don't get lost in a question until you observe the whole thing because a lot of times God will answer the questions that we're asking as we continue to read. You ever, if you've ever tried to be a teacher, don't raise your hand, and don't raise your hand if you're the student that did this. But you're trying to explain a game or you're trying to explain something, and you've always got that person that raises their hand before you ever get done talking, right? And they just want to know something. Well, they don't, they don't stop long enough to listen. They just interject. If they would just listen, they would get to the end and they would understand what you're saying. But it's the art of listening as well. And so Scripture will oftentimes answer the questions if you just keep reading. Scripture answers Scripture. So don't lose that as we dig through the Word of God. So keep going to verse chapter 5 and 6. It says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. Now that's weird. He starts with talking about we're in fellowship with him. We, we've touched him. We know him. And now God is light. Okay, keep going. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. Well, now he's talking about the darkness. And now he's calling out people who are liars. If we say that we walk in the light of God and yet we don't have fellowship, there's that fellowship word again, then we are liars. We lie. Now, I don't know if you ever have been in an argument with someone or you've been in a conversation with someone, but when they call you a liar, doesn't that just make you feel good about yourself? Isn't that just wonderful? Okay, now he is the authority in the church right now, and he's calling out his people and telling them, you lie. If you say that you believe these things, and yet you don't have fellowship with God, then you're a liar. So now I know someone's lying in the church. John's addressing a very specific issue. There's something going on by, by watching and observing this. Someone's lying, and John is calling them out. Have you ever, have you ever been that person that's getting called out in a meeting? And you're like, eh, I just want, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's uncomfortable. And John is laying it on thick. I want, don't miss this. He's going to be talking about love, but he's calling out a liar in the midst. All right? And he's doing it in such a way that everybody in the audience knows who he's talking about. Keep going, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You see, when the Bible starts using words over and over and over again, those are key words that are being used, okay? So we need to pay attention to those. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now he brings in the blood of Jesus. So we're talking about lying. We're talking about the blood of Jesus. We're talking about having fellowship with one another. We're talking about the eyewitness account that John and whoever else that he's addressing had with Jesus. So there's a, there's a major faction that's happening within them. And he's reminding them now of who Jesus is. He's reminding them of the work of Christ on the cross. Not only is he reminding them of who they are, John and the, the teachers. Guys, we were with Jesus. We touched him. We know what it is that he taught. But now he's reminding them of the work of Christ. Now this is one of the reasons why most authors think most scholars think that John is the author of First and Second and Third John. The language that we have in these first seven verses is very similar to the language that we have in the Gospel of John. 
If you know anything about the Gospel of John, and if you don't, then I encourage you to read your Bible. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right. So when we start talking about this, and John is saying the Word, the infallible Word, and we touched Him, and He was with the Father, you see the commonality that's happening there? So all of his students, everybody that he's speaking to in this church would have known his original teaching in the Gospel of John as well. All right, so you can start seeing some of the similarities that are happening here. Even if John wasn't the actual author, it would have been at least his direct students that were writing it, which would also explain why it was such a common commonality between the Gospel of John and First and Second, Third John. But it can't. The truth of what we're going to uncover doesn't reside in the fact that whether John wrote it or he didn't write it. The truth of what's being confronted is the fact that someone is calling into question the identity of who Jesus is and the work of what he did on the cross and what the blood of Christ signifies in our life. And there's a fellowship that is being broken because of these teachings that have infiltrated the church. All right, so let's keep reading. So now we're going to keep reading. Do you see how I'm observing and interpreting and applying as I'm going along? All right, so 1 John uh, 8 says this. 1 John 1.8 says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Oh, now he's going to start talking about sin. And the truth is not in us. Did you, did you catch? He's calling them a bunch of liars again. If you say you don't have sin, you are a liar. Okay, now he didn't say that, but he said the truth isn't in you, which means if you aren't truthful, you're... Deductive reasoning says lying. Okay. If we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness if we confess our sins. And so now he's, he's going back and now talking about the work of Christ again. What does Christ do in our lives? Keep going. Huh. If we claim we have not sinned. So this is the lie because he's now repeating it again. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him out to be the liar, and his word is not in us. You see how these lies are beginning to shape up in the, in the, as we're reading the scriptures here? Now, what, what he's saying is happening in the church is if you say you're without sin, you call Jesus a liar. Now I'm to the point in reading this where I'm like, all right, I've got to get a little bit of extra help. All right, I want to find out who is he talking to? Who is his audience? What is he confronting, right? And so good students of the Bible, what do they have? Good students of the Bible have commentaries, all right? Digital or physical? All right, guess what? I'm 47 years old. I'm old school. These things are called books, all right? They have, they have pages, all right? They have a little paper in them. I love the feeling of looking like I completed something, all right? Now, some of you guys have computers and, and digital devices and things like that. I have them too. I'm just joking. you. I use those as well. But the reality is, we have commentaries at our disposal. A student of the Bible is going to dig into them. There is so much at our fingertips that we can dig into the Word of God and find out what was going on. It is there at our disposal. And yet the church in America are some of the most biblically illiterate people walking on the face of this earth. I have friends in other countries that literally risk their lives for pages of the Word of God. And we have multiple Bibles that sit dustily upon our shelves. Man, there's something wrong with that. We don't, most, most Christians haven't even ever read the Bible cover to cover. Most people who say they are di disciples of Christ haven't even ever read it entirely. 
How do we say that we're a disciple of someone we don't even read what he wrote? You see the disconnect here? We've got to be reading our Bible. And so when we do this, we, we study these things. And when I began to study them, I found out what John was combating. These ideas of docetism and Gnosticism and Corinthianism were everywhere in John's world. And so when he, who he was confronting were these false religions. They were heresies that were going on. How do I know? Because archaeologically, we have the original documents of the New Testament. We have the original manuscripts. We don't even have hand-me-downs. We got the real stuff. We have John's students' writing. So it'd be like you could go out of here and quote me as a student. Now imagine if you were a disciple and I were meeting with you day in and day out. That's what his disciples would have been. His disciples were people called Irenaeus and Polycarp, all right? Maybe you've studied some of them. But when I started studying and researching, okay, what was John studying? This, or combating these teachings, these lies that were infiltrating the church. Docetism was one of them. Now, this is off of Wikipedia, right? There's, there's far more uh, in-depth studies on this, but I wanted to use a generic one, all right? So I just went to Wikipedia, and it actually is actually helpful because it keeps it pretty simple. It says, this is the doctrine that's important in Gnosticism, that Christ's body was not human, but it was either a phantasm or of real but celestial substance, and that therefore his sufferings were only apparent. All right? So this idea of docetism is that Jesus was mystical. Now we're back to the story why I told you about the guy who picked me up. Docetism. Jesus was a mystical being. All right? Now there's some arguments that could be made to that. There's some scriptures, again, I could use to prove that that statement is right. Biblically. But I'd be taking them out of context if I left them there. What they're saying is that when Jesus was on the cross, it wasn't really him that was suffering. It wasn't really God that was suffering. It was only his physical body. By that point in time, he was no longer in that body anymore. And he had this ability to be two divine natures, and it wasn't really him there. It's, when you start digging into it, it, I think it gets very confusing. They think it becomes very enlightening. All right? So then I'm like, okay, what's Gnosticism? Because docetism is a, a sect out of Gnosticism. What does Gnosticism teach? Gnosticism says that humans are divine souls trapped in the ordinary physical or material world. So you and I are, are just stuck down here in this material world. They say that the world was made by an imperfect spirit. The imperfect spirit is thought to be the same as the God of Abraham, which would be the God that we say wrote the scriptures. See how, see how this is beginning to infiltrate the church? This is what was being taught in John's day and age right after Jesus was here, all right? It had infiltrated church. Keep going. They say that Jesus is identified by some Gnostics as the embodiment of the supreme being. See how closely related this is? So they even acknowledge that Jesus was the embodiment of the supreme being who became incarnate to bring Gnosis, which this is the spiritual enlightenment, huh, to the earth, while others adamantly denied that the supreme being came in the flesh at all. Why? Because they're separated. The, he wasn't in the flesh, he was in the spirit. Claiming that Jesus was only merely a human who attained divinity through gnosis, and that's what they taught his, and he taught his disciples to do the same. That if, they, if you just follow the teachings of Christ, you can attain this spiritual enlightenment. That's Gnosticism, right? And there are a lot of Christians who believe a quasi-view of this type of teaching. All right, so Gnosticism and Docetism have infiltrated the church for years. This is nothing new. So when I'm hitchhiking across Arizona and I come into this teaching, I'm like, wow, 
John's, John had to confront this 2,000 years ago. Why? Because it's so closely related to the words that Jesus Christ himself expressed. It's so closely, closely related to the words that we do find in the scriptures, that we are spiritual beings, that we can attain eternal life when we get to heaven. But it's only done through Christ, not through his teachings. Because if it's through his teachings, then we make Jesus a liar. Do you see what John is confronting there? All right, I'm making a lot of applications, and I'm, I'm hoping the wheels are starting to click as we're seeing how first, second, third, just these, this, this first chapter is confronting some deep, dark heresies that were infiltrating the church at that point in time. So if you, and again, I said I get stuck in observation, so I'm just going to go down that trail a little bit longer with you. So if you're not a history buff and you're like, okay, get on with the story. All right, I am. All right, so this is what else I found. All right, so John, he was up against a guy by the name of Serentis. All right, I don't know if you know anything about Serentis, but he, Serentis taught Serentianism. Many scholars believe that John was actually confronting Serentis in these books. So how do we know that? glad you asked. I'll tell you why we know that. Because John had students. Oh, remember Irenaeus and Polycarp? Yeah, we have their original writings. They were students of John. They're, we have a quote that they say, quoting John, when John was confronted, he, John was, you remember how I said I like to make the scriptures come alive, and he was, and what do they do? So John's, and he's going down to the bathhouse, oh, I stink, I've been walking on the day, dirt for a while. So he goes down, he knocks on the, I don't know how the bathhouse works, but he gets there, and he's like, oh, Serentius is in the tub with me. I ain't going to go in there, and he runs away, and this is what he says. Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down because Serentis, the enemy of the truth, is inside. We have record of him saying that. Why would he be so adamant about sharing that with his students if he wasn't adamant about the fact that this man was bringing mistruths to those who he was trying to teach? Now again, that's just a little story. That has nothing, well, it actually has a little bit to do because Serentian uh, wrote a gospel. Uh, Serentius actually wrote this Gospel of Serentius. And if you ever study the canonicity of the scriptures, I'm throwing out words that you might be like, what is the canonicity? I don't even know what you're saying. The canonicity is how did we get the Bible, the books in the Bible that we have today. And so if you ever study that and, and you ever watch the History Channel, a lot of Christians watch the History Channel instead of reading the Bible. But anyways, um, they do that. And, and then they, they think they know about the Bible because clearly the History Channel has good things in store for those who study it. And so um, they're trying to portray them as Christ. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> Uh, so anyways, but they do teach about the lost gospels and the Gnostic gospels on the History Channel, okay? So the, the Gospel of Serentius is one of those lost gospels. It isn't lost. We found it, all right? It just wasn't included in the canonicity because it teaches heresy, all right? So that's why it didn't make it. Why? Because John wouldn't even go into a bathhouse with the man. Do you think they put it in the Bible? You see how, you know, we don't get that off the History Channel, but we can get it if we study the scriptures. Now, do you have to go off the chain like I do on observation to figure this out? No, you do not have to do that, unless you want to. It's not that bad, it's actually a lot of fun. But John, I believe in his divine inspiration, has addressed any heresy. We, it, it isn't just Gnosticism or Docetism or Serentianism. When you actually start reading first, second, and third John, he has addressed any heresy that denies the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Any heresy. 
So you don't have to know Gnosticism or Docetism or Serinthianism. You just have to recognize the truth and the untruth. And when you find the untruth, how do you combat that? How could I have better spoken to Joseph, the one who picked me up? He was a good Samaritan. He did the good thing. He was showing love to me by picking me up off the hot road. Trust me, I had blisters on my feet after hiking down that stupid interstate. And he picked me up. And we talked about Jesus for hours. But he didn't believe in the truth of the word of God. He got stuck by his false teaching. That's what was happening in the early church that John was addressing. He said, if we claim we have not sinned, we make Jesus out to be a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 2, 1-2 says this, My dear little children, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, so this idea of this idea that we, Gnosticism, when uh, actually when you, when you believe, as the Gnostics believe, your body is just a spiritual body, and what you do in this body doesn't really matter because it's not really you doing it, you're your spirit being, and your body actually sins on its own, and you don't have to be held accountable to your sins because you weren't the one that actually did it. That was your physical body, but that's not who you are because you've been enlightened by Christ, and you're actually a spiritual being, and so what you do in body and in person doesn't matter. So, my dear children, I write to this, if you do so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, so if this physical body actually sins, we now have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He, he alone, not his teachings, his being, he alone is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. His blood, now you see how John's bringing this all back to the blood of Jesus. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. My friends, John is calling out the false teachers of his day in very clear form. If you are in fellowship with Christ, John is saying, if you believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then you have an advocate for you standing before the God of this universe, the God that they think is a fallen God. These heretics were preaching that you don't sin. These heretics were preaching that you're separated from your body. These heretics were preaching that you can live without sin in your life. These heretics were preaching it doesn't matter how you live because it's not really you doing the sinning. And John is saying, guys, if you believe this, the truth of the word of God is not in you. If you believe what they're saying, you are not walking in the light of Jesus Christ. My friends, when we begin to think about this, the scriptures say if we confess with our mouth and we confess our guilt, if we confess our wickedness, if we confess our unrighteousness, if we confess that we deserve to die, we have to confess that. That's what Paul, John is saying here. Then Jesus will stand before God and he will be an advocate for us. Now imagine this, we're standing before God, actually probably falling on our knees begging for mercy. But we're before God on that final day, and we're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to go out of here someday. It might be 10 years from now. It might be 50 years from now, but you're going to die. And when you go to God and you meet him, you're going to, he's going to say, did you do all these things? And it says, if we confess with our mouth, yes, I deserve to die, then the scriptures come in. It says, but yeah, you have an advocate. And now Jesus is going to step up in that moment when you confess, yes, God, I am so unworthy. And Jesus says, yeah, God, they did all that. But remember, I paid the price. My blood, it covers their sins. And John's reminding them of this very simple truth. 
but we have to be reminded of it because we're in a world just like theirs that wants us to believe that we're really good people. Yeah, but you're just a good person. No, you're not. The Bible says you're wicked. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what he's saying is if you say anything other than that, then you make Jesus out to be a liar because Jesus said that you're wicked and said that the only way you're ever going to get to this righteous God and in heaven is if you declare that Jesus is your advocate. If you accept the work that he did for us on the cross, the shedding of his blood, you're never going to be good enough. You might be a really good human. You might be so much better than Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler. You might be even a better version of your neighbor. But without Jesus, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. Jesus is the only hope we have. And it had infiltrated the church that they thought they were good people. John, 1 John 2, 3-11 through 11 says this, and I don't have enough time to go to break this passage down as much, so I'm just going to read it. But he immediately goes from declaring who Jesus is to now how the work of Jesus had changed the way that we live on the outside as well. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. That means if we start living like him. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't... Here it is again. John really was going after him. Anyone who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands makes you out to be a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Do you see how he's calling these things out? He should have just said Serenthus. But because it's the written word of God, God and his divinity knew there were going to be a lot of Serenthuses walking around the earth after him. But if anyone obeys his word... Love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know. Again, Scripture interprets Scripture. Well, do I need to worry about this? How do I know if I really love Jesus? Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Ah, pretty simple, right? We just got to be like Jesus. Oh, that's a tough task. My dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command. I'm writing an old one. This one you've had since the beginning. This old command, it's the message you've already heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command, making them think, yet I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the light is already shining. It's like the, God is coming alive in their thinking. Keep going. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in that light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. If you hate your brother or sister, you are clearly not in Christ. Keep going. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Hmm. Darkness has blinded them. I wonder how many of us have been blinded by the darkness of the lies of the enemy around us. This idea that well, I love Jesus and that's all I need. It doesn't really matter how I live down here because in the end, I'm going to heaven. Now, I've confessed my sins. I do believe that Jesus is my advocate. Well, he didn't stop there because the heresy went on from there. The heresy went on to say, well, then, because you do believe that, it doesn't really matter what you do in your body because you're just a, you're just a spiritual body anyways and your physical body doesn't really always cooperate with you. Shoot, I could preach Romans 8 and prove that point to you. But our spirit... Our spirit needs to be in line with what Christ teaches, and so it would change the way that we live. You see, what I'm going to be doing now is now I'm going to start making an application. In the day and age that we live right now, I really challenge you, think about the last time you were on social media. 
You know, you know that lovely tool that we use to espouse how much we love Jesus and love others? Oh, wait, no, that's not really how it's used a lot of times. Think of the last person that made you just blistering mad. What kind of thoughts did you have go in your mind about them? Were they loving Christ-like thoughts? Or were they full, filled full of hatred? You see, we're living in a world that is driving a wedge between Christians and believers at a rate that I've never seen in the history of the Church of America. Now, maybe in other countries, and certainly maybe in other times of the world, but not in my lifetime. We're driving hatred and bitterness. Shoot, some of you, I might disagree with your political stance right now. Some of you might disagree with mine. I'm not going to hate you. Nor am I going to use my platform in order to drive a wedge between your and my relationship. Why? Because it says, it says right there in the Word of God, if I truly love Christ, then I'm going to love my brothers and sisters. And if I hate anybody, then the love of God can't even be in me. We can study what love looks like, 1 Corinthians 13. It's called Love Chapter. You should read it, verses 4 through 8. It's amazing. Put your name in there as you're reading it. Do you love people like that? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Hmm. I just asked you, who did you just get mad at on the internet? You probably filled your full, mind full of names that you could rattle off how you disagree with them. I'm not saying you've got to agree with people. We live in a divided world. But we can't hate them. I have a lot of people I disagree with. But the only thing that divides us spiritually is if we say Jesus isn't who he says he is. The only thing that divides us spiritually is if they believe in someone other than Jesus, just like John was confronting. Your political opinion doesn't divide my spiritual belief with you. Oh, now I've seen some good arguments on Facebook that make us think it's a spiritual issue. We're using this to weaponize divisions within the church. It's a tragic event. I wonder, what, I wonder what John would say to us if he were up here preaching his message. How many of us would he call out by name? That's harsh. That hurts. Because now we're talking real life. It's a lot easier to read about John running out of a bathhouse than it is about us and the relationships that we have to live in in our families. Isn't it? I don't, I don't like application. That's why most of us don't get there that far. It's a lot easier to not read the Bible than to be confronted with the truth. But I I don't want to end there because that can be a little bit heavy. I want you to understand that John gave them the hope of Christ. He didn't say that you weren't ever going to sin. In case you do sin, in case you harbor bitterness in your heart, in case you harbor hatred in your heart, confess your sins to God and he will forgive you. He is your advocate He will take it away. He will wipe it all away. That is the hope that we have in Jesus. That's the same hope they had 2,000 years ago. It's the same hope that we have today. That's why it doesn't matter what country we're born into. It doesn't matter what sociological realm we live in. It doesn't matter about our demographic. It doesn't matter about the color of our skin. What matters is do we have the hope of Jesus Christ covering our lives? And that can preach regardless of culture. That can preach regardless of economics. That can preach regardless of politics. It is the uniting voice of Christ that crosses cultures. And God gave that message to the church, to you and I. So when we begin to ask ourselves these things, and we start looking at this, and we 
ask ourselves, am I really a follower of Christ? I've got two questions for you. Two questions for each one of us. Two questions. Simple. Again, I like to keep these as, things as simple as possible. So as I read this, I want to close with these words. As how to identify a heretic is what John ultimately did for us today. Who do they say that Jesus is and how do they live? Who do they say that Jesus is and how do they live? So you just apply those to your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? who died, who lived on this earth a perfect life, died on the cross and rose again for your sins so that he could be an advocate for you on the day where you are desperately going to need an advocate? Then you, then you settled that question. If you haven't settled that question, my friends, today, please don't go out of those doors until you do. It's the most, decision, more, most important decision you're ever going to make is who do you say that Jesus is? He loves you. He gave his life for you. John preaches all through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John about the love of Christ for that. And once we get that, then church, the second question we have to ask ourselves is do we live like Jesus? Do we live like Jesus in a world that has gone awry? And if we haven't, then we need to confess our sins. Go to the last slide. We've got to confess our sins to God. If, if somewhere along the line we've gotten tripped up, if we're allowing the the hatred and the bitterness and the anger and the fear to somehow drive a wedge between us as believers and fellow Christians, then confess your sins to God. God already knows what you're thinking. Shoot, some of us, the world knows what we're thinking, right? God already knows what you're thinking. Just confess it to God. Say, God, I'm sorry, I screwed up. He goes, I know you did. It's okay. Because my son, he paid the price. I'll forgive you. And if you do it again tomorrow, confess your sins tomorrow. And God's like, I know. I forgive you. It's okay. He paid your price for that one too. And if you confess your and if you sin later on that night because you got back on social media and you thought horrible things about the people who wrote that crap, how could they call themselves a Christian? Peach that stuff. Right? then you better confess. Oh, God, I screwed up again. I know you did. <laughs> you thought a lot worse than that, didn't you? But it's okay. You've got an advocate. He paid the price. You see, when we say we love Jesus, it genuinely should affect the way that we treat each other. It's got to. Because he left us, the church, down here in a broken world to be a reflection of his great love. And that's hard. But he gave himself for us and he sent his spirit to live inside of us so that we'd have some measure of hope that we could actually do this. Let's pray. Dear God, I just come before you right now. And Lord, if there is anybody in this room right now that has not settled who you are in their life, God, I pray right now that the power of your Holy Spirit would move so strongly in their life that they would be like, you know what? I need to say that Jesus is the Lord of my life. I need to surrender to him. Folks, I'll just give you a moment right now. If there's someone in here that you've never made that decision, you're like, you know what, I want to settle that with Jesus right now. Just slip your hand up real quick. I'll pray for you. And I'm not just as I am person. I'm not going to give you 20 minutes. you got two seconds. You need to make that decision.
Lord, those of us that have made that decision and settled it in our hearts, God, I pray that our life is worthy of your name. God, forgive me for all the times that I've fallen. Forgive me for all the times that I've sinned. Forgive me for all the times that I've thought horrible things about people. Forgive me for all the times that I've gotten angry. God, I pray that my life, my personal life, would be a reflection of your incredible love. And Lord, as a pastor, my prayer is for the church, your church. Lord, I can't pray for every church, but I can pray for Journey, that we'd be a, a great reflection of your love, just in our circle of influences. God, that we would point people to your amazing love. God, that our lives, our church's life, would be worthy of your calling in us. And God, if we have sinned, Lord, may we confess that at, at your cross, at the foot of the cross. And God, may we rejoice in the truth that you are our advocate. And the work that you did for us on that cross, Lord, it is such a redeeming work that every day I get up, I get to rest in the fact that you are my Savior and you are the hope of the world. And you work through my life. God, I pray that we would just glorify your name. God, I pray that your church in a time where there is darkness all around, that we would truly be the light, the hope that people desperately need right now. Make our hearts quick to repent when we realize that we're out of line with your word. God, we thank you for that. Guide us, direct us, and help us to love you more and more every single day we draw breath. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.